Welcome to the Resources for Integrated Care Disability Competent Care webinar series. This podcast is excerpted from a webinar presented live on February 15, 2017. This webinar is presented by the Lewin Group and is supported through the Medicare Medicaid Coordination Office at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. MMCO is dedicated to ensuring beneficiaries enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid have access to seamless, high-quality health care that includes a full range of covered services in both programs. To support providers in their efforts to deliver more integrated, coordinated care, MMCO is developing technical assistance and actionable tools based on successful innovations and care models. To learn more about current efforts and resources, please visit our website or follow us on Twitter for more details. Our Twitter handle is at integrate underscore care. In this podcast, Chris Duff, a disability practice and policy consultant, discusses the firsthand experience of living with a disability and the importance of establishing a relationship with the participant. Good afternoon, everyone. Today, we will encourage you to understand the participant experience. While each individual is unique, they have some common some common experiences. Most experience barriers to care, whether access, communication, sensory, or others. With understanding, we will be able to support them as they need. This is the means to establishing an essential relationship with each participant. The main body of this pillar is the assessment itself, the content, process, and outcome. This is where you get to know the participant from their perspective. Besides basic history, solicit their goals and priorities. From this assessment, disability competent care providers in partnership with the participant, can develop an initial care plan. The involvement of care partners is incorporated into the participant's care plan. As I shared in the presentation last week, the relationship you are able to develop with the participant is the key to success. With a strong relationship, the participant and their team will be able to move forward in concert with open communication and a joint commitment to the identified goals and plans. Without this relationship, participants commonly become disengaged or feel their health and health care are in someone else's hands. The results can be a lack of follow-through, withholding of key information, and frustration on behalf of both the participant, the interdisciplinary team, and their providers. Many of us have found ourselves in this position. If so, I encourage you to stop and try to put yourself in your participant's position. I have found this gives me insight into why they are doing as they are and gives me a new way to approach them in this situation. Somehow you need to disengage from the conflict. As stated earlier, establishing a relationship requires actively listening to both their stories and experiences. 
as well as careful review of their complete profile and records. Ask them questions to engage them to talk about their history. When they were born, where did they grow up? Ask about their family. Ask them about what they would like to have different in their life in the next year. Try to get a sense of their social support system, family, friends, colleagues, and others. Have they been active in a church, an athletic league, or community activities? Ask them what they would like to do with their free time. This will all give you a sense of who they are and most importantly, show that you care enough to get to know them as a person. Lastly, and I place this intentionally last, inquire of their health and health history. Getting to know them first as an individual helps to keep their health and disability in perspective. It is important to obtain their health history, but even more important to obtain their experience of their health and how it affects their functioning. Through this initial conversation, to get to know the participant, you will certainly hear about barriers they have experienced. These barriers, these health and other barriers commonly lead to frustration and health disparities. In the disability competent care model, these barriers are characterized as attitudinal, access, communication, and programmatic. As with other disenfranchised groups, they have a culture of their own, created out of a common understanding and experience. Some may withdraw due to deep barriers, feeling isolated and frustrated. Some may become angry, while others may find alternative ways to get their needs met. That said, the first step of disability competent care is to simply listen to them, understand their experiences, frustrations, barriers, and needs. The next pillar in this webinar series will focus solely, this next pillar and the next webinar in this series will focus solely on these barriers to care. Research has repeatedly shown that persons living with disabilities experience a range of health disparities. Most all of them are related to the issues I reviewed in the last slide. The result is inadequate care and poor outcomes. For example, a person with disabilities commonly experiences difficulty or delays in receiving necessary care, and they fall short of targets and rates of important screening tests. Due to difficulty obtaining primary care services and reliance on specialists, their preventive care is often neglected. Many have not had dental care and don't routinely receive sexual, relevant sexual health information. Even something as basic as hypertension is not identified and addressed at the same rates as with the broader population. There are also a variety of social factors that impact health status and outcomes. Many people with disabilities rely on Medicaid and or Medicare for their health care. These programs are going through extensive redesign, moving from fee-for-service to value-based purchasing. 
as these payers are beginning to focus on outcome measures, such as cancer screening, vaccination, diabetes management, and so on. The clinical interventions are straightforward, but communication and service delivery stretch the disability competence of many providers. Of course, many of these are directly related to the access issues I discussed earlier. Add to that the financial, eligibility, transportation, and other challenges. It is no wonder they experience poorer outcomes. The health of persons with disabilities is at stake due to these factors. For many providers and plans, improving outcomes for disabilities will address impact on revenue, and therefore it behooves them to also attend to these related barriers. The goal at this point in your relationship with the participant is to establish a partnership in addressing their barriers and healthcare needs. Make the discussion participant-centered, focusing on their life, their needs, their goals. Be aware of barriers that exist in the living environment, from as simple as floor services to an inability to access water. It's good to remember that the barriers you perceive may be different than the ones they perceive. Be open to learning about their experience for they may have developed a very functional workaround, and then share your observations. Perhaps the hardest to understand and appreciate are the attitudinal barriers many people with disabilities experience. These interactions can simply wear a person down and they stop trying. Again, the result is a missed opportunity for quality outcomes. There'll be more on this in next week's webinar. Talking with a participant about their healthcare services and experiences will give you insight into their ability to get their needs met and the level and nature of supports they need. Ask if they have had avoidable ER visits or even hospitalization. By avoidable, I mean those that could have been prevented if the participant was able to obtain the care they needed and at the right time. Examples of this are UTIs and respiratory infections. Is their home care and living setting stable or inconsistent and chaotic? Ask whether they can rely on having their needs met on a routine basis. Observe how actively they participate. The participant is able to participate in the assessment. Or do they seem to have a limited understanding of their needs and functioning? Do they even have an active primary care physician relationship? Or are they relying on specialists for most of their care? While specialists provide very important services, they commonly don't focus on prevention and are not linked to the interdisciplinary team or other physicians. Many people with disabilities, and I'm thinking of people with MS in particular, their primary physician tends to be tends to be neurologists, for they're the ones who they see most frequently regarding their disability. But neurologists traditionally do not address all the preventive services that everyone needs. Lastly, and very importantly, there are formal and informal support systems in place. 
more on that concept of care partners at the end of this presentation. This slide provides a series of tips to help the participant direct their care. You can go over the list on your own, but many of them are simple tips to share with participants. Suggest they think through and write down their questions before an appointment. Or to consider asking a friend or assistant to come along to take notes or even help them assert their concerns if needed. Suggest they choose new providers based on the recommendations of their friends. For personal experience from peers is often the best. Perhaps most importantly, coach the participant to actively identify any and all accommodations they require when setting the appointment with the provider so they are prepared when the participant arrives. As you conduct the initial assessment and subsequent updates, keep into account the participant's capacity to express and assert their needs. This slide outlines the di some dynamics that need to be assessed in order to develop a plan that incorporates the level of assistance they will require. Some participants will be very clear about what they need and want, while others may be unable for whatever reason to express these as this slide, slide says, the main message is to just listen, listen, and listen. Don't be looking at your computer, watching or attending to texts. None of us like that, and people with disabilities don't do it. Now, we're going to listen to Jim Lebrecht. We heard from him in the first webinar. He was born with spina bifida. He grew up outside of New York City and went to college in Southern California. He then moved to the East Bay of Northern California to take a job at the Berkeley Repertory Theater as a sound engineer. He recently opened his own business during the film industry. I don't think, I've never come across a situation where I felt that people were really prepared to take the best care of me. I don't believe they knew what to do with me because I had a disability. And I think that they were guessing what they might need to do based on how they've treated all of these other people who don't have a chronic disability or active disability. I don't think anybody has a protocol for it. I don't think anybody knows. And it's my life and my care and the amount of pain I'm gonna have and the length and time, the length of my recovery you really should. And this isn't about the ADA or, you know, having to follow the law or something like that. It's the right way to take care of people. Talk to me. I'm your best resource to know what to do with me. I love how that clip can. In this clip, Jim is challenging all of us, again, to just listen. He wants to and is more than capable of actively participating in the design of his care plan. Our goal with someone like Jim is to identify a plan and then simply step aside so that he can make it happen and be available if he runs into any barrier along the way. My experience is that a participant's ability to take charge of their health care 
has less to do with their disability and more to do with their level of activation. There's a great tool that has been developed about 15 years ago and validated by Dr. Judith Hibbard of the University of Oregon. It uses a simple 13-point questionnaire to identify where the participant is on the journey of self-activation. We have placed a link into the chat function, or we'll be placing a link into the chat function for a PowerPoint describing this tool. I have found it to be extremely useful, even if not actually applying it within your plan or uh, provider context, to understand the concepts behind it are a good way to begin thinking about how do we allocate staff care coordination time um, in working with individual clients. The first two steps of the care planning process are assessment and identification of needs and priorities. The remainder of the process will be discussed in greater detail in webinar five, introducing care coordination. It is important to remember that this process is ongoing and fluid, being revised and updated as needed. In the DCC model, assessments are conducted by an interdisciplinary team composed of a nurse, primary care practitioner, social worker, and behavioral health practitioner. While not all members of the IA interdisciplinary team may be present at the initial and subsequent assessments at the same time, it is vital that they all conduct pieces of the assessment pertinent to their scope of responsibility. This information can be documented and shared at an upcoming team meeting. It is strongly encouraged that assessments be conducted within the participant's living setting. This provides an opportunity to see where and how the participant lives and to assess the environment to some degree. While not all members of the team may be able to visit the participant's home, these observations can later be shared with the remainder of the team. The involvement of family or care partners can be beneficial, though must be done only with the express consent of the participant in advance of the visit. I remember a couple of participants were very self-conscious of someone coming to their house to do an assessment. They didn't know who we were as they planned. They didn't know what a care coordinator was. So the first few times we met them, we met them in a the coffee shop near their place slowly building the trust, and then they invite us into their home. So it may take some time, you may need to work with it, but I do think being in an individual's home it will give you great insight into who, into who they are and what they need. As implied above, the role of the IDT will vary greatly based on the ability and readiness of the participant to assume responsibility for the health and health care. The more they understand, and are able to carry through, the better they will be able to maintain or improve their health. It is suggested that the IDP expressly ask each participant how much support they want. This could be a chosen conversation at the end of the assessment and can minimize expectations not being met. The number one feedback we had 
And the program I ran was that they didn't get enough contact from the care coordinator. Um, so this is this was our response to that is to explicitly agree on that. To be more concrete, we would ask the participant whether they wanted to be left to themselves or would call us and would call us when they needed something or whether they wanted us to initiate contact periodically. If they said periodically, we would jointly agree on a frequency and sometimes even a specific day. This was especially helpful for those with significant anxiety and stress concerns. Having a strong and supportive rash relation will greatly enhance performance on quality measures. This also provides a context to follow up on regarding basic needs, such as cancer screening, preventive inoculation, and identification of chronic or ongoing concerns. The disability competent care assessments are, by necessity, very comprehensive and all-encompassing, as you can see in this slide. It is necessary for the full team to get a picture of the participants, their goals, priorities, history, and needs. Most integrated Medicaid and Medicare programs require this level of assessment, be it the dual demonstrations or PACE programs. This assessment serves as the foundation for the care plan and the oversight responsibilities of the team. Besides the IDT members delineated in this presentation, the involvement of additional professionals may be beneficial. For example, persons with significant functional limitations may benefit from assessments by both an occupational therapist or a physical therapist. It is vital that each member of the team review the entire assessment, even the parts they did not conduct, for each discipline brings a different set of skills and perspectives. From this assessment, referral to additional specialists may be needed, such as a nutritionist, an audiologist, rehab engineer, mobility specialist, or others. At this point, I wanted to tell you about someone I worked with many years ago. I will call him Tom. Tom experienced a traumatic brain injury in a motorcycle accident in his late teens. This resulted in significant functional and cognitive limitations, and he was bounced back and forth between rehab centers, hospitals, his mother's home, and even a few nursing homes. He never lasted long anywhere because he was a handful. He was angry and frustrated and let it be known. He could be both charming and engaging, as well as highly frustrating. When I first met him, his goal was to live with his mother, to do his own cares, find a job, and build relationships. The barriers he experienced to achieving these goals were physical limitations, limited access within the house, and impulsive and socially inappropriate behavior making relationships difficult. I will tell you more about his progress at the end of this presentation. Having completed the assessment and having a good sense of the participants' needs and priorities, it is time to start developing a care plan with the participant. The plan is based upon the participant's life goals, care goals, and action steps for their accomplishment. The care plan is reviewed and revised over time based on changes in the participant's life 
and its new issues are identified. The individual care plan is a living tool developed to guide all involved in a coherent and consistent course of action to achieve the participant's goals. While some components listed in this slide are relatively common, the resulting care plan will be unique to each individual and provide clarity for all involved. The individualized care plan also needs to have a few additional components to ensure basic health and safety. Plans need to document any communication accommodations required, which needs to be shared with all those working with the participant. Risk management plans vary greatly based on the participant. For those with behavioral health issues, such as stress and anger management, strategies need to be developed, documented, and communicated to those around the participant to provide support as needed. For an individual who is highly dependent on equipment or others for personal assistance, emergency backup plans need to be specified and communicated. For example, a participant who requires help to get out of bed every day needs to have a plan in case the assistant doesn't show up or isn't available. For a participant who relies on power equipment, such as a wheelchair or a ventilator, they need to have access to backup equipment or backup batteries or even an electrical generator. Disability competent care model calls for the participant and their team to think through and develop plans proactively. Let's get back to Tom now. I'm even followed by his pediatrician well into his 20s. He was embarrassed and wanted a new doctor. His team talked with him about a couple of doctors in the area, going over what they had heard from other participants and the level of accessibility in their offices. He had home assessments for both OT and PT, who recommended several relatively minor modifications, such as a few grand bars and removal of some thresholds. And he had some home-based therapy for a few months to work on his personal care, which was a real priority for him. Being a man in his late 20s, he really didn't want his mother to be doing his cares. He participated in independent living skills training, focusing on skills such as money management, meal preparation, transportation, arrangements, and others. His personal care services were redesigned so that he and his attendant could go to a local YMCA several times a week to work out. He is currently getting along much better with his mother, and he's even reestablished his relationship with his brother and some friends from his high school years. So you can see how his life has turned around. Of course, there will be more crises, there will be more problems, but this gives you a sense of how the assessment can lead to the plan and can result in some nice outcomes. As stated earlier, care plans are living documents discussed with the participant and their IDT. Once developed, the plan goes into action until a change is needed or requested. Throughout the development and revision of all care plans, 
Participants need to be assured that they have the right to request an alternative plan or to appeal to another person within the plan or practice or to an outside ombudsman or agency. Our experience is that the con- is that conflict or significant disagreement, uh, disagreements seldom arise if there's open communication and a strong relationship of trust between the participants and their team. We all need a circle of support, be it an immediate family or neighbors, to colleagues, friends, and those we've met in community activities. That is key to health and well-being for all of us. In the DCC model, we refer to these as care partners, not caregivers. Caregivers implies a one-way relationship. We view these as natural supports who choose to participate because they want to. It is important to clarify with the participants how they want to involve their care partners, what information they wish to have shared. Their lives have often been such an open book they may just want to regain some privacy. Mostly, we suggest communication be left to the participant to share information as they see fit. Care partners sometimes need, also need to be helped with establishing and maintaining mutually supportive relationships. Sometimes the participant or care partner may need a break and the interdisciplinary team needs to attend to their needs so the relationship can be maintained into the future. They could consider uh, an increase in personal care assistance or even a respite um, setting for a little while. It is also important that clear channels of communication and privacy be established between the care partners and the interdisciplinary team and other providers. Most partners are not experienced in this role and can benefit from some information coaching, or even basic support. I have certainly seen a tendency on behalf of care partners to overshare information with the participant treatment team, interdisciplinary team, excuse me. This can be disrespectful of the participant, and it is important that the interdisciplinary team not get pulled into such interaction. As stated from the beginning of this webinar, The key to health and well-being is the participant's relationship with their interdisciplinary treatment team, interdisciplinary team. The open and trusting communication will build a partnership that can achieve the goals of the participant. This trusting relationship is based on the team knowing the participant and how they have experienced their health and health care. Assessment is an iterative process conducted through a discussion with the participant and repeated over time. 